Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and my co-host is Lily Gorn of Carroll University. Today's podcast is another edition of Postscript, in which Lily and I invite authors to reflect on contemporary events based on their previous scholarship. Today, we're thrilled to have two scholars of the presidency reflect on the early weeks of the presidency of Joe Biden. Dr. Menabos is an executive dean for public policy and public service programs at the Peter Calico School of Government, Public Policy, and International Affairs. She's the director of the Calico Center for the Study of the American Presidency at Hofstra University. She wrote Shaping and Signaling Presidential Policy, the National Security Decision-Making of Eisenhower and Kennedy, which was published by Texas A&M University Press in 1998. And she's edited several volumes in presidential studies, including most recently, Executive Policymaking, the Role of the OMB in the Presidency. And Lily will be doing a podcast on that book in the next months. So thank you so much for joining us, Mina. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today is Dr. Daniel E. Ponder, the L.E. Metter Professor of Political Science and Director of the Metter Center for Politics and Citizenship at Drury University. Dan has written two books on the American executive. Good Advice, Information and Policymaking in the White House, Texas A&M University Press 2000, and Presidential Leverage, President's Approval and the American State from Stanford University Press in 2018, a book Lily and Dan talked about on an earlier New Books podcast, and we'll link to that in the show. Welcome back to the podcast, Dan. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Both of you are public-facing intellectuals who do a lot of media. The beauty of Postscript is that you have a little more time to explain So let's start off by asking you both for some first impressions on Joe Biden. What do you think about Biden's approach to his first weeks in office? And is is this what was to be expected? Thanks, uh, Susan and Lily, for for having me. It's great to be uh, having this conversation and uh, with uh, my good friend, colleague Dan, uh, to talk about um, the state of the American presidency and particularly the Biden presidency. I would say uh, a couple weeks in that the Biden presidency is, uh, I guess I would describe it as action-oriented. Though that's not the first word I would phrase I would use. I would say kind of calm, deliberate, um, I guess I can't emphasize calm enough, non-chaotic and and then action-oriented. And I say that because I've just finished teaching the American presidency and we were discussing the large number of, you know, 40 plus executive actions in the last two weeks. And um, and just to talk with students about uh, the merits as well as the limits or the risks of unilateral power. But, but again, on, on the whole, I would say, um, the Biden, the early weeks of the Biden presidency have been as expected. Dan, what do you think? I would agree with that. I think that um, it is, I, I was struck as, as Mina was by uh, the calmness. Um, I think especially in face of what is a, a very continuing uh, large storm or set of storms, um, obviously the pandemic uh, still uh, poses serious and very difficult challenges, uh, but there's also uh, executive orders, unilateral actions, um, mostly aimed at either uh, setting up um, some 
you know, task forces and study groups, uh, and also to uh, reverse some of uh, President Trump's actions. And I guess I was also struck, I think, um, by at least the tone of bipartisanship uh, with having, for example, the 10 senators, the 10 Republican senators uh, to the White House. Um, so there's at least a tone, who knows what's gonna happen uh, with that going forward um, as they hammer out a bill uh, or, or, or possibly set of bills. But uh, um, yeah, I think it's, it's about what we um, might've expected um, knowing Joe Biden in his career uh, here at the end of the, the first couple of weeks of his presidency. Can I just add one thing just to pick up on when Dan said that about Dan, we were just talking about the task forces and uh, the response to the pandemic. I was just thinking it's it's particularly impressive, right? It was expected, but given um, how uh, complicated the transition period was, right? That it didn't begin until I guess officially November 23rd, right? About two weeks after the, almost three weeks after the election. And um, for the Biden transition team and then the administration to really be hitting the ground running under what was a very contentious period from election day to inauguration day, that even though the transition period wasn't as short as it was in 2000, um, I would say actually in many ways was probably looking back on it more stressful and 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 more chaotic certainly more chaotic ultimately so so I, I guess just i mean just it's it's pretty impressive the cabinet appointments that have been approved right the ones that are going forward the kind of just uh it, it's it's not surprising but it's it reflects i think a lot of attention to kind of uh to detail and and a plan for action i guess and to me i given the the way the transition was it and thinking about what you've all said about the calmness, it's almost that during all of the chaos in which nothing was settled, Biden was ignoring that and just hiring people and arranging people so that this very short transition, he's been more successful in putting people in seats, in agencies than Trump was, even though he had a regular quote unquote transition time. So it's, it's, it's impressive. Yeah, I think especially if you think back to Martha January Kumar, 5th. who directs the White House. Go ahead, Mina. Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. I'll, I'll follow up. Go ahead, please. Okay, I was just going to say, um, and and to uh, follow up on what Susan was just saying, that you know, in a way, there were sort of parallel tracks that I that I personally found very interesting. If you look back to January sixth uh, and what happened um, with the disruption of the uh, electoral vote count with the uh, attack on the Capitol and so forth, you know, there was, there was very clearly um, a, a moment uh, or, or, or many moments that the nation kind of sat back and, and gasped a little bit, but at the same time, um, the, the Biden transition uh, continued forward with the, like, like, like you were all were saying with the uh, appointment of cabinet secretaries, uh, clearly getting ready. I mean, they were ready on, on the first day with what was it, 15 or 17 executive actions. So, you know, that, so in a sense, there was, you know, the, that, that public face of, of, of the um, peaceful transition power or lack thereof, and, but at the same time, uh, continuing forward um, with getting ready for uh, January 20th. And I just wanted to pick up on that. I think that it, it's the executive actions that were ready on day one to move forward. And that was clearly, you know, that was that was all very deliberate. This wasn't impulsive by any means. Um, 
but also um, the number of appointments, not just the cabinet level, probably the, the most visible ones, but deeper within the White House, within the cabinet agencies. Martha Kumar, who directs the White House Transition Project, um, has, has uh, I spoke with her recently about this. Uh, we were on a panel together um, for Suffolk University on the early Biden presidency, actually just yesterday. And she said that um, when you look at the numbers, she's been tracking the appointments that have been made, the ones that aren't always getting front page news. And it's really very uh, impressive how deep they're going in. I don't have those specifics, but you know they're available through the transition project. And uh, I think again, just make clear that this was, um, the uh, the Biden uh, Joe Biden, President Biden and his uh, his top advisors they were preparing uh, for the presidency and um, and you know made good use of of that time before uh, before inauguration. I, I wanted to jump in here and um, and ask my my colleagues who study the institution of the presidency, as we not only talk about the first couple of weeks of the Biden administration, but a lot of what we've been discussing, this calm versus chaos is is, you know, a personal approach versus a different kind of approach. But the institution itself has been kind of battered around a little bit. Um, and there's been, as, as you both know, because you've also written about it, there's been a lot of scholarship on the institution of the presidency and the executive branch of late. Um, and I did want to ask you both a little bit to reflect on how not only the new Biden administration is coming into the office and what they're doing in terms of appointments, but in terms of the institution itself, is there a stabilization that's going on that is something that a new president can do? Is there something else going on that helps to potentially reformulate the office? Um, you know, this is a complicated office that we've had a lot of difference, different occupants in and how they conduct themselves. Um, I guess I would say there, there are kind of two tiers of answers uh, to this, because when we discuss institutions, Lily, I, I think initially of uh, something like the press secretary, right, Jen Psaki, and the just reading about how um, Psaki is has reinstituted the tradition of the senior reporter, right, someone from AP saying thank you, Jen, and you know then concluding the conference that way, right, and so and really kind of giving. The, the White House press briefings, which had halted in the Trump presidency and in, in the uh, toward the end of the it, various points in the Trump presidency, uh, with the last two press secretaries, to, that kind of reinstitutionalization of patterns, right, of, of communication, um, that is significant. Uh, but I think there's another part to this. Um, when we talk, when we look at some of the scholarship that's been written about the need for more accountability, right? The 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 piece, the, the Bauer Goldsmith book on reconstructing the presidency, or, or recommending a number of very specific actions, right, to require presidential candidates to release income tax returns, et cetera, right? Just just one example to to institutionalize. Um, accountability for the presidency. Um, and then Steve Knott's book, uh, arguing that that we've kind of veered, the United States has veered from 
the proper conception of the presidency as representing the public interest, not necessarily responding to people's interests. These are, I guess, these are much larger institutional proposals. And um, I think that they raise questions for us about whether the office needs to be changed in some significant ways. And part of the question for me with that is that if we start that process, what else will change? So I, I think that those, those are kind of the harder questions and maybe we'll get into them. But I think the first part is also significant. I, I definitely agree with that. And I also think, um, you know, it's worth thinking about, like probably a lot of us who teach on the presidency, um, my students get a, a healthy dose of uh, Julia Azari's work. Um, I, in fact, she kind of bookends my class with her at the beginning with her work on um, with uh, Jennifer Smith on informal norms. And I know that there was a lot of discussion or I, I, I felt there was a lot of discussion throughout the Trump presidency about, you know, erosion of norms. And, uh, and, and I think you did hear some voices that were sort of saying, well, that's not a big deal because, you know, Trump is Trump and, 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 um, and, and these are norms anyway. But, but I think what that, what that failed to understand was how much the institution of the presidency is shaped by these norms. Um, you know, one of which uh, has, has grown up over the past 45 or 50 years, as Mina pointed out with, you know, um, uh, making um, tax returns available, but also just things about the presidency um, that were eroded, one of them being, uh, again, as Mina said, uh, the, the press conferences, um, the, the mode of, um, of communication with the public. Uh, one of the things that was interesting, I remember being on a panel right after the 2016 election, and this was even before Donald Trump took office, and one of the questions was about, um, you know, is this a new thing? That was mostly talking about the election, but we, we also looked forward to the presidency and would this new way of doing things, would that be a Trump specific uh, example or would that more systematically shape uh, the office of the presidency? And I think what we see again, this is very early on is that, I don't know if I wanna say so much that it's, it was necessarily uh, an aberration um, but certainly I think a return, it, it's almost, um, it's almost arresting. I think I remember looking at some of, uh, uh, Donald Trump's choices for various cabinet and, and white house positions and looking at them and, and, and looking at their backgrounds and, and seeing that they had, you know, in many cases, uh, most cases deep, um, experience and knowledge in those particular areas, as opposed to where, what, what perhaps had been some of the case uh, with um, with the previous four years. Not always, but in but in some cases. So, so I do think that um, we're looking at a resilient institution, um, and every president, you know, sort of pushes and prods the limits of of power or authority. Um, but I think what you're starting to see is sort of a a return to normalcy. And of course, some people will, will argue that that's, um, you know, that, that that was not necessarily an issue with President Trump because he was going to do things the way he was going to do it. But as you see this sort of returning, almost an elasticity that we're, we're returning to in the, in, in the presidency uh, has been something that I thought was interesting, especially the, this, uh, maybe this uh, 
uh, again, paying attention to these informal norms, informal in a sense, but also that have uh, in many ways uh, shaped the presidency that uh, we've come to uh, know and understand over the last couple hundred years. I know you both don't study Congress, but as you're looking at what's going on right now and the censuring and uh, censuring of two very, very different uh, so-called problems, uh, I mean, what do you, do you, how can I put this? On the one hand, Dan, you could be right that, that in a sense, Trump is a blip and now we're returning to what we've always had, or are we sort of still working out in American politics a kind of a, a yearning for a certain kind of populist message, tone, smashing of norms that Trump represented um, within the Republican Party. Like obviously somebody like Mitch McConnell wants to return to the normalcy that you're talking about. It's not clear the entire party does. And as you watch them in their hesitancy there, I wonder. Yeah, I, I think if, if I can take this for just a second, I think, um, What's been really interesting to me, even going back before uh, 2016, is, and, and this also sort of harkens to Steve Knott's book that, um, um, that Mina referenced, you know, about the lost soul. I, what's interesting to me is to look at both parties. You know, um, years ago when I was in graduate school, we had to read at least part of James McGregor Burns' um, um, deadlock of democracy, I think is what it was called, where you talked about at least four parties. And I think you see that a lot, uh, especially in the Republican Party, not exclusively in the Republican Party, but even if you go back uh, before Donald Trump, back to when John Boehner, for example, was Speaker of the House, you had, um, you know, a very sort of establishment type Republicanism and what started with the Tea Party and then kind of grew into uh, you know, the Freedom Caucus, and then um, especially over topics such as immigration, which might not just have policy implications, but have electoral implications. Uh, and I think you really see that now with both parties, right? Because you have sort of the, what type of Republican party is going to emerge in the next two years or and certainly in the next four years, you know, after 2004, Democrats had a lot of soul searching to do because the, the the planets were seemingly aligned for John Kerry to win the presidency, and then and then he he lost. So Democrats had to kind of go back and, and try to refigure. Um, I think you know you see this tension playing out in the party per se, but certainly in in, in Congress because um, you know they are now the Republicans find themselves in the minority, uh, and what kind of party is it going to be a Trump? type party? Is it going to be another type of, of, of more establishment? Um, and you do see this, I think, with the Democrats as well. Uh, what kind of party is going to emerge over time? Uh, will it be more of a left-leaning Bernie Sanders, AOC type party, uh, or a more center-left type thing? So I think, you know, you see that playing out in Congress right now. Uh, and to me, at least, that's one of the most interesting things to look at uh, in American politics right now. If I can just, I think, Dan, you're getting to directly the crux of kind of the challenge in American politics in 2021, which is this kind of the sorting within both political parties and the, the tensions between the extremes 
and the center. And it's, um, I, I think we can't discuss the presidency without discussing Congress, because in fact, why are we seeing so many executive actions, right? This unprecedented, we just heard our colleagues, Andy Rudolevich, Sharice Thrower, right? They were interviewed by National Public Radio on the, and I think one of them said, we haven't seen this kind of, this much action since the 1930s. Why is that? Well, even with unified government, with uh, uh, one party controlling the House, barely, the Senate with the with the vice presidency and the um, White House, that's still not a guarantee of action. And there are intra-party divisions that are also significant. Now, that's certainly, I think the Democrats, I was asked this, I remember, um, before the inauguration, before before uh, the Georgia runoffs, would it be better for Biden to have a semi-divided government? I said, without a doubt, I think President Biden would prefer to work with divisions within his party than between, because at least there's a chance, right, of moving things forward. But I, I think um, this is a real uh, attention that we're seeing, not just polarization, right, but we've had colleagues write about um, the, uh, ideological differences, and then whether these are becoming actually, right, Liliana Mason's argument about uncivil agreement, whether it's become, um, you know, not just your ideology, right, but your actual, your how you view people. Um, and that is, um, I think th those are real questions for uh, how that is addressed in Congress is um, within the parties and the challenge for party leaders to, kind of build a coalition, uh, Speaker Pelosi, right? Um, the it, House, uh, the Republican Party, right? Liz Cheney has managed to stay for now, but um, this is not, right? This is, and, that, and what is she being punished for? For voting for impeachment for a president that was on his way out of office. Um, you know, and I think that that's, uh, so anyway, there's a lot we can discuss there, but I think the short, I would just say, we can't discuss the presidency without looking at Congress, because otherwise you're just looking at executive unilateral power. And that's very a very risky um, strategy for a president. And, and I just wanted, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. We can't look at the presidency without looking at Congress, but what you both have also been talking about the whole time is the parties. And so we, you know, we bring back our, our colleague, Julia Azari's sort of thesis with regard to the parties themselves, um, which are, you know, hyper-partisan, but in a certain sense, particularly weak at this time. Um, and I'm wondering how, as we have a new president and there's this very slim majority um, in both houses in his favor, um, how does the sort of the, the landscape with regard to the parties themselves and the president and former president as the leaders of their party, how does that also contribute to our shaping of the institution or our understanding of how the institution functions? Nobody likes that question. No, it's just such a big question. I was like hoping Dan had an answer ready to go. <laughs> well, I'll go first. I'll be short. Then Dan can give a longer answer because it's. I think this is a big challenge. And just after the inauguration, which is supposed to traditionally emphasize the focuses on unity, right, and the principles that uh, bring all of us together as Americans, whether you supported the president or not, that 
tradition is under stress like never before. I mean, certainly that was the theme of President Biden's inaugural address, but is it, um, is it believed, is it accepted? You know, there, there is a, certainly, um, there is a challenge for rebuilding trust and confidence in government. And even if people wanna do that, I mean, actually Dan's research on presidential leverage, right? How you look at approval ratings and um, confidence in uh, kind of the state of the nation. Um, President Biden's approval ratings are high. They're close to not quite 60%, right? But they're they're in the high 50s. That's already higher than uh, than Trump had throughout ever in his presidency. Um, but President Biden faces challenges with um, within his own party um, for passing legislation, whether that be on the extent of pandemic release relief, sorry. So that's within the Democratic Party as well as with the Republican Party. And despite the overtures and the very kind of, I think, productive discussion with the 10 Republican senators, uh, it's not clear that that's going to produce results, right? I think that, I think that ultimately it's not clear that that will produce, sorry, bipartisan results. So I think that the, you know, Julia Zari's really found foundational work on the boundaries that political parties provide, as well as the limits, as far as getting party members to kind of fall in line. I mean, we're seeing this right now in, in the House of Representatives, where the representative from Georgia is saying that previous remarks should don't reflect what she says now. Right. And so they're kind of meant to just be pushed aside, which if you want to do that, then anyone who's said something before that was, you know, distasteful or challenged the state of the Republic, just let it go. Right. It wasn't an apology by any means or a dismissal, just saying that's not what I'm saying now. Um, so I think that that all of that is to say that um, even if leverage even when the president is at kind of the, the high point of leverage, and I'll defer to Dan on this, is this, this is really his scholarship, this is you know, the scholarship, the pioneering scholarship from his recent book, um, even when it's at high, it's no easy task. And I'm not sure even though Biden's approval ratings are higher than his predecessors, the state of the nation is certainly um, not one that is open, that has wide opportunity for leadership or, or action. And Dan, let me ask you a little bit about leveraging because that that's that is what your scholarship is about. And and we hear people sort of talking about like the first hundred days, but they're not really talking about the power that he has. Mina has 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 referenced that his public opinion approvals are high. People are positive about his potential for leadership, in particular, the Pew poll picked that up. But but what are you looking at as somebody who sees leveraging in a more complex way than what happens in the first hundred days? Well, especially because it is so early. Um, it, it is uh, not terribly clear right now. I think after we get a little bit of, of, of space um, between uh, the inauguration, uh, we'll, we'll find out a little bit more. But as Mina points out, you know, uh, the, 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 his approval ratings are, are, are high, um, are, as she said, as she pointed out, better than, than um, Donald Trump's ever were. And I think that was one of the problems with Donald Trump. For those of you, uh, for those listeners who, who, who may not know, uh, the way I look at leverage is I kind of try to look at the president in the political system. And a way that I tried to measure that was by looking at a presidential uh, approval as an individual, kind of as in, in, in well, in the numerator, if you will, and then in the denominator is um, 
a series of indicators that come in with a uh, that, that that establish a level of trust in government. So at any particular time, the the higher that coefficient, if you will, uh, the more leverage the president has because um, he is sort of the best game in town is that, you know, goes higher. Donald Trump, it seemed to be, was never really able to take advantage of, I know this is going to sound weird, but of, of low trust in government um, because he was never able to really talk beyond or get beyond that 35 to 40% of uh, the population that uh, approved of him. And so what you see, I think, with, with Biden right now is that he does have uh, this sort of, um, um, I don't know if I wanna go as far as to say sort of moral authority, but, but his approval ratings are higher. Um, trust in government is still low, although it, it, it does vary. Of course, you know, trust in government was actually, a lot of people who look at the political system now may not remember or, or, or have context to know that actually, Trust in government was very high, uh, and certainly in, in the in the, in the post New Deal, up through the Eisenhower into the Kennedy administration, and then of course, kind of plummeted uh, during Vietnam and particularly Watergate. It did rebound a little bit after. Uh, well, it rebounded a, a bit, not much, not and never anywhere close to to previous levels, but and it, it did rebound fairly dramatically after 9-11, but then, but then sank again. And where presidents have been able to take advantage of that is when, they, when their approval rating sort of outstrips that and they become sort of the, the, the person um, or the institution, the office, uh, the politician that people look to. And I think you're kind of seeing that with, with, with Biden now. Um, Trump, like I said, was, you know, he, he had his own style, but because he was never really able to get beyond uh, a particular level of approval, even with trust in government being low, he wasn't able to gain some of the uh, advantages of that. So I think in, in looking at President Biden, at least right now, and you do start to see that, and, and as Mina points out, it's not at all clear, and, and I think Lily was talking about this too, it's not at all clear that this will go and continue this bipartisanship, um, but to go bring it, kind of bring it back around to the, to the parties, what can President Biden do with this, at least this initial effort at bipartisanship? Um, and what will that look like? You know, I think if past is prologue, as we all know, right, midterms usually aren't good for the president uh, for, or for the president's party in Congress. So it's very possible that this window that, that President Biden has is, is, is fairly narrow and these two years are what I'm going to be kind of looking at in terms of, of leverage, in terms of, of how he is perceived, measured imperfectly as it is through approval, but also um, what happens to, it'd be interesting to see what happens with, to trust in government as well, as we go sort of forward and, and see if there is this return to normalcy that we were talking about a little bit earlier, or if that uh, too becomes fleeting and, a, and, and uh, kind of a casualty of what has become politics as normal. Dan, let me ask you a quick follow-up. On the one hand, he's got these enormous problems, right? He's got to curb the effects of COVID-19. He's got to get economic relief to people who are struggling and bring back the economy. And then he's also put on the table addressing climate change and systemic racism. So, but the first two, like th this is a big agenda that he laid out, but the first two, 
though they're so huge, seem to almost go back to something you were saying about about leverage and trust in government. These are precisely maybe the kinds of things that people can show that government does do something. Donald Trump, it seems to me, he talked about transportation. He never actually did it. And when he finally did do it, he did it behind closed doors and didn't have a press conference, which made no sense, even though his daughter was involved. So is, is Biden able to maybe these are such big problems, but can he show that government can put a shot in your arm? Government can put a check. Like, can these be opportunities for him, or is this are these just too big problems for somebody to solve? In my opinion, I think he has real opportunity here. Um, I I know if if he, one of the problems I see with getting things uh, to move forward is, and, and I'm thinking of Francis Lee's work. Um, on uh, uh, insecure majorities, where she talks about, you know, if you look back over time, the places where you got the most advantage uh, from uh, congressional action, even from the minority party, is when, you know, there was no real chance that the minority party, and at that time, it was usually, you know, in the last 60 years, that uh, for a lot of that time was the Republicans. Um, But when control of one or both houses of Congress is sort of up for grabs in any given election, there's less incentive for the uh, minority party, uh, in this case, the Republicans, to do much in the way of cooperation, because then, you know, the signal is, okay, uh, you know, why change horses in midstream? And, and so it'll be interesting to see what, what happens with that. I do think that it's also interesting that this agenda, it seems to me, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly more than happy to be corrected, but one of the things I've been thinking about, too, with these agenda items that you pointed out, is that a lot of these, and, and you see it reflected in the, in the unilateral actions that President Biden has taken, is it seems like it's almost more driven, at least part of the agenda, by what's been going on in the previous administration. You know, so much of what Biden said, you know, and he said this the other day uh, when he was signing some executive orders, you know, uh, you know, he said, I'm, I'm right to be criticized for how many executive orders um, I'm signing, but, you know, I'm not creating policy. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not creating uh, law. I'm, I'm reversing bad policy. And so I do think that there's uh, things that he can focus on. It's, it is a big agenda. Uh, a lot of it's driven by trying to reverse some of the effects, both in the foreign um, policy realm, as well as the domestic policy realm. Um, and it'd be difficult to, I, I think it'll be difficult under, under the best of circumstances, but particularly since he is operating with such a slender majority in Congress, and it'll depend on the incentives that they're looking at. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, he was already saying yesterday, right, that, you know, we're going to win ba- this back in two years. I mean, one level politicians say that all the time, but since it is so narrow, and if the past is prologue with midterms, then then he's very possibly right. And as, as we've been talking about, obviously, if uh, the Republicans take over one or both houses of Congress, um, then the road gets a lot rockier uh, going forward for, for President Biden. You know, I would just add to that, I, I agree completely challenge of working with Congress, right? And the, and the 
you know, the, not just the hundred days, which is kind of an artificial, right, construct, but nevertheless, we focus on that. But but the first two years, as, as Dan said, before the midterms, right, this is really, you know, Jim Fifner, the strategic presidency hitting the ground running. This is the time, right, Richard Neustadt wrote about this, right, the first 12 to 18 months of a presidency is, is the greatest opportunity for action. One of the reasons I think why Obama worked so hard on the Affordable Care Act, because there were critics who said that should have been a second term issue. Well, if he had left it as a second term, it pro I, I don't think it would have passed and and he won re-election um but the other two variables i would say that we have to uh that make it even the make the bar to action even higher are one the pandemic and this crisis right unlike it the once in a century right that we're in this time where people really we were talking about susan you were talking about confidence in in the shots right but you know people have questions about the vaccine there are questions about distribution um the, president biden said instead of 100 million maybe we'll do 150 million right and then the white house walked that back a little and it's certainly you kind of appreciate the desire to to move forward, but it's production, logistics, confidence building, equity issues about where the vaccine is being distributed. These are, you know, seemingly in some cases, you know, highly daunting challenges. They can be addressed, but they're hard. And then on top of that, the other variable, apart from the Congress, insecure majorities, um, the crisis of the pandemic, and social media. I mean, people are so, it is so easy to tear down, right? And to, to criticize what people are doing. You can just look at real clear politics or anything to see all of Biden's shortcomings. Certainly there was no shortage of that during the Trump presidency, but this was true with Obama. It was true with George W. Bush. When was the last president who had some sort of bipartisan regard, maybe George H.W. Bush, right? His post-presidency post was very well received, but of course he was a one-term president. So, you know, there are limitations there, but I think, you know, I think this is an issue that we are contending with, we contend with as individuals in our in our lives, our families, in workplace, and then in the political sphere. Um, I don't think we want to, social media brings a lot of benefits for information sharing, for considering of ideas, but it also provides a lot of room for kind of criticism, denigration. Uh, criticism is kind of the best of it, right? Denigration, mean-spiritedness, threats, danger. And, um, and that's something that has to be, I think it's such a challenge for elected officials who can't, really can't turn it off. But even if they have other people assisting them with it, um, you know, it has to be addressed, or I mean, some case, rare cases we see social media will turn someone off, but that doesn't, right, that doesn't, you can't, <laughs> um, I think those were pretty unusual circumstances. And I think this challenge of how to govern when there is so, there is no room for any sort of negotiation or time to, uh, to persuade makes it very difficult. I mean, I just, I think about, as you're saying this, where you began, which is about his detail-orientedness and his attention to data and, and his calmness. And in some ways, though the pandemic is obviously a challenge to any leader, just look at the other leaders who are trying to do it. We, we didn't actually have a leader who tried any action against the virus with the exception of trying to get a vaccine. And so it is interesting to watch him do things like tell the distribution areas three weeks in advance how many 
doses they're going to get instead of two days. That's a very small thing and it's never going to make it into the media because it's too boring. But it, it does seem like that boringness, that action-oriented, boring, small detail maybe could get some some part of government to work in a very different way. And, and maybe that would help them. I don't know. Or maybe it's just too hard to not be pulled down on social media. Anyway, okay, we, we we're coming to the end and Lily has a, a, an amazing question. So I'm going to turn it over to her. I, I don't know that it's a really amazing question, but I did have the opportunity to talk to Caroline Heldman and Lori Cox Hahn last week about their book, Madam President, question mark. Um, and so as we have, you know, now moved from imagination to real occupancy of the vice presidency by a woman and a woman of color and a woman of another color um, that I, I'm wondering for my two colleagues here, who are experts on the presidency, what do you think about this shifting in the imagined space to a real space? And when and if we get rid of that question mark at the end of Madam President? Lily, it's an excellent question. And it's one that I, I, I can't give a clear answer to because in some ways I want to say that we'll reach that point when um, when we're paying less attention to it. But of course, we have to pay attention to it because it's highly significant. But I do think that, you know, Vice President Harris, what's really impressive, what we saw in 2020 was someone who ran a presidential campaign that kind of got off to this, what a visible start, right, with this challenge to Joe Biden about civil rights and school desegregation to ending her campaign just before Thanksgiving because the money wasn't there, right? And then going on to become the nominee, the Vice president making history in so many significant ways and someone who really in you know eight years ago was was getting name recognition right i remember the 2012 election people talking about the attorney general in california as a rising star in um in national politics uh someone who a rising star in democratic politics and so i think um we have to start for people like maybe the less visible names um, in the states, uh, possibilities who, who might be building a national profile. And I think, um, you know, we've seen the first of color. Now we have a vice president of, of biracial, right? Multiracial, maybe we'll start to kind of improve these <laughs> terms so that it'll be less of something, right? I mean, that, you know, biracial versus multiracial, right? Maybe we can just start to kind of recognize the, you know, the richness of the demographic diversity in America of race and ethnicity. Um, and then, um, and then the gender is absolutely significant. And I, and I do think, um, I think the path forward is from seeing success and from having kind of a historic number of Democratic presidential candidates who were women, all of whom dropped out, but then to see one of them uh, be selected and to be, be elected vice president um, makes the 2020 election so significant and the Biden-Harris administration. And so I think that very much kind of uh, gives optimism for open for getting that question mark. Just a question, but the question mark then is when will it be? And and I see it in the next decade or so. It's just hard to explain. Yeah, and very quickly to to um, follow up on that. Um, I hate for this just to be a, a always, and I agree with Mina kind of thing. But I, that's exactly what I was sort of thinking was that, you know, we, with with 
Vice President Harris in there, and um, and it almost becomes something where we can think about it if we're you know once we stop having to think about it. You know, the, the example that Mina used, which is exactly the example I was thinking of, was all of the uh, female candidates in the Democratic uh, primary, even though uh, they obviously they they dropped out. You know, as this becomes, I, I'm a, and I really hate to use this term as it becomes normalized you know it's something that we just don't think about anymore or it just becomes well of course you know amy klobuchar or elizabeth warren or somebody is you know is going to um you know throw their hat in the ring be a viable candidate whatever uh, of course after hillary clinton in 2016 um and you know there was all those uh, post-mortems about how much of it was uh, misogyny and how much of it was um you know the baggage that she carried regardless of gender and so on and so forth but i think um that yeah absolutely i, I you know i expect um for example if, if if president biden doesn't run uh in 2024 uh because he will be you know close to maybe what 82 or 83 uh, by that time. Um, I expect to see um, uh, several uh, women, uh, other people of color uh, really get involved. You know, we start, you know, you're starting to hear possibilities of that on the Republican side with Nikki Haley uh, and, and, and other names that pop up. So um, yeah, I would say, yeah, within the next decade uh, or, or shorter than that, I think, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, some of these um, uh, this become much more normalized to the point where we don't even really um, we'll, we'll always talk about it, but but it becomes less of a of a of a wow factor and more of a okay. Here are people who have experience who are um, seeking the highest office and 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 see where that goes. I, I think that is a great place to end our conversation. I want to thank Dan Ponder and Mina Bose for joining us today to talk about the new Biden administration, the institution of the presidency, our understanding of what's going on in politics um, in um, a broad and complicated landscape. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you both on the new books in political science podcast in our particular postscript um, episode. And I look forward to talking to you both about forthcoming books in the near future. Thank you. Thank you, Willie. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Dan. Really enjoyed the conversation. Same. Thank you all.